Hi everyone, at long last, welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I am your host, Jason Harris. I know I disappeared there for a while, I apologize. Between leading a birthright trip and coming back with a nasty winter cold, plus some technical issues with the podcast, I fell behind. So if this is your first time listening, uh, go back and start from the beginning. And for those of you joining me for the 11th episode today, you may want to review the 10th when we introduced Abraham and Sarah. Today we will continue their story. But before that, and I know I mentioned this, I think, in the very first episode, although I work in a professional capacity for a Jewish organization, this podcast is solely my own work. I'm not representing that organization here. The opinions I share are my own. The birthright stories I share are my own. And I do this podcast on my own time because I am a history nerd. I came up with the idea for this podcast as a way to continue reaching my birthright trip participants whose questions I didn't get to answer on the trip because uh, no one wants to sit in the front of the bus with the uncool staff. It's okay, my feelings aren't hurt, I'll just sit here in the dark recording podcasts. That said, uh, if you or someone you know is a lawyer specializing in copyright law and can advise me on some long-term questions that I have, please hit me up on Facebook or the website which is www.jewoughtoknowpodcast.com. Cool? Everyone good? All right, let's get started. I would say to young people that they can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So if you went on a birthright trip, you probably remember being at the Bedouin tent out in the desert. This is where you rode camels and got yelled at by a staff person for being too loud around the bonfire at night. It wasn't me, I would never do that. But anyway, while there, you met with an actual Bedouin who explained the complex rituals around how the Bedouin greet and handle guests, the takeaway of which is a code of hospitality in which the Bedouin must provide accommodation and assistance. If you wondered where this tradition comes from, that's explained by the first story in today's episode. We are continuing today the story of Abraham and his wife Sarah, who, having settled now in the land of Canaan and established an eternal covenant with God, encounter a few challenges. We've got three strangers showing up at their home, a destructive God, lots of sexual deviancy, and an exploration of the nature of divine justice. If last episode was about Lech Lecha, Abraham going forth after being told to by God, Today's episode is about the changing nature of that relationship, where Abraham both feels a deep sense of loyalty, but also a willingness to push back against what he perceives are God's harsh measures. So we begin today with chapter 18 of the book of Genesis. At this pace, we should wrap up the Hebrew Bible around when NASA lands on Mars, but stick with me because these first few books of the Bible are, of course, the most jam-packed and set the scene for all of Jewish history to follow. We find Abraham sitting by the door of his tent around noon on a hot day when he sees three men approaching. Abraham goes to greet them, and the Bible illustrates that Abraham puts on quite a production to host these men. He gets them water and invites them to wash their feet. He tells them to recline under a tree. He tells Sarah to make them bread and cakes to eat. He goes out to his herd to find a nice calf from which he takes the milk and the curds and the calf itself to the men, and he invites them to stay as long as they want. You can see here the roots of Bedouin hospitality. The Bible does not record whether these men later played wagon wheel around the fire pit, but one can assume they probably did. Apparently you have to on birthright, usually several times a night. Anyway, 
These men ask to speak to Sarah because they say they are here to tell her that she is going to give birth. At this, Sarah, who is eavesdropping, laughs because, after all, she's in her 90s. Traditionally, the rabbis interpreted her laughter as sarcastic because of the exchange that comes right after. We've come to the understanding that these men are actually God coming to visit their angels. And God gets a little annoyed. God turns to Abraham and asks, why is Sarah laughing? You really think something like this is so hard for me? Listen, I'm going to come back next season and she's going to have a son. Sarah says, I didn't laugh, to which God responds, yes you did. And Abraham says to both of them, if you don't stop arguing, I'm pulling over and we're not going to Tahoe. So a strict reading of the Bible would seem to suggest that, yeah, Sarah's laughter was sarcastic and flew in the face of God's will. But can you really blame her for doubting? Up to this point, God's communication has been pretty exclusively with Abraham. His relationship is on more solid footing, and Abraham has been made to understand about God's promise to him and his future children. Sarah doesn't quite have that give-and-take communication with God. God told Abraham about Sarah giving birth before Sarah found out, so she could be forgiven for doubting that this would actually come to pass. Of course, we could also interpret her laughter as a genuine one of excitement. She was eavesdropping, so perhaps her laughter was just to herself, and she didn't think that anyone was going to call her on it. That's the beauty of the Jewish tradition. You can interpret the same stories in different ways to suit different ideas, and you don't have to accept as definitive mine or anyone else's interpretation. God and Abraham walk away from the tent to overlook the city of Sodom. And here we get to one of the more famous stories of the Bible, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There are a lot of ways to interpret the story. Was Abraham arguing with God or bargaining? Did God already know the outcome and was just humoring Abraham? Was God trying to teach Abraham a lesson about justice so that Abraham would know to teach future generations about the consequences of sin? Is this a story about the dangers of homosexuality? So many ways to go. But as usual, let me tell you the story and give you a few ways to think about it without getting too lost in the weeds in any one direction, hopefully. So as the two of them, God, still in the form of these three men or three angels, overlook Sodom, God has a little interior monologue going on. God wonders, should I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Seeing as how he's going to be a great nation, he needs to be in a position to tell his children to keep the ways of God and to do justice and righteousness so that they will eventually have this great nation. At this point, God says to Abraham, you know, that city of Sodom, they're all committing horrible sins there. I'm going to go have a look. And at this, the three men head down to the city while God and Abraham stay up above. And Abraham asks, are you really going to destroy the righteous people along with the wicked? What if you find 50 good people there? And with this question, Abraham opens up an entirely new kind of relationship between humanity and God. Up to this point, humans either go along with what God says or suffer the consequences if they don't. When Cain asked whether he was his brother's keeper, God responded by punishing him severely for even asking the question. And when God told Noah to build an ark, Noah built it without really questioning why God would destroy humanity. And when God told Abraham to go forth to Canaan to become a mighty nation, Abraham did it. But now Abraham presents God with quite the criticism. He asks, shouldn't the judge of all earth act justly? In other words, says Abraham, you, God, really shouldn't condemn the good people of Sodom to die like the wicked people. Is that really what you're going to be about? So here we have for the first time a human claiming the right to pass judgment on God, to provide commentary on what kind of God God should be. 
God tells Abraham that Sodom won't be destroyed if the three angels find 50 men. And here we have the great act of biblical bargaining, with Abraham proposing 45 good people, then 40, then 30, then 20, and finally 10. If there are 10 righteous people, says God, I won't destroy the city. Meanwhile, the action moves down into the city of Sodom itself, and things are really not going well. The three angels have come to see what is happening, and they encounter Lot. Lot, you may recall, is Abraham's nephew, who had traveled with them from Ur in Sumeria all the way to Canaan, and who chose to settle with this flock around the area of Sodom. By the way, just to help you picture things on a map, we are talking about the area around the south tip of the Dead Sea. While, of course, it's hard to pinpoint exact biblical locations, a couple of ancient cities have been found in that area with destruction patterns similar to those described in the Bible, so some scholars suggest that it's not unreasonable to assume that those cities are the biblical Sodom and Gomorrah. Anyway, Lot, displaying a similar sense of hospitality as Abraham, insists that the men stay with him. They actually refuse at first because they want to stay at the Holiday Inn downtown, but Lot convinces them with the offer of a huge feast. That probably would have gotten me too, actually. But here's where things really go off the rails. All the men of Sodom surround the house and call out to Lot to send the three men outside because all these guys want to, quote, know them, unquote. Now the phrase to know someone in the Bible in this sense means to have sex with them. And in this case, to rape. Lot refuses, since these men are his guests, but to pacify the guys outside, he offers the men of Sodom his two virgin daughters to rape instead. Seriously, what a guy. Well, the men of Sodom refuse this very kind offer and break into the house to rape the three angels, at which point the angels inflict all these guys with blindness. They tell Lot, listen, if you've got more family, get them out of town because we actually came here to tell you that we're going to destroy this place. The next morning, we're told, Lot hesitates to actually leave, so the angels grab him and his wife and his still virgin daughters and push them out of town, telling Lot, look, whatever you do, don't stop to look back at the destruction. God rains brimstone and fire from heaven down upon the cities and farmland of Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying everything. Lot's wife stops to look back and is promptly turned into a pillar of salt. You can still see her today towering above Route 90 in Israel, condemned for all time to watch birthright participants take selfies in the Dead Sea. The scene cuts to a reflective Abraham watching all this happening from atop a mountain and leaves us all to wonder what this whole episode was about. So first off, let's eliminate the notion that this story is about sin, and specifically about making homosexuality a sin, which lots of people throughout history have tried to use. This is one of the few places that homosexuality is mentioned in the Bible, so it has subsequently had an unfortunate impact in some religious circles. Most obviously, of course, the derisive term sodomy comes from the city of Sodom. But it's important to note that the whole notion of the men of Sodom wanting to rape the three visiting men isn't about homosexuality. It's a vehicle to explain that the real sin of these people is seeking to harm someone under the protection of the culture of hospitality. Sodom's wickedness is actually mentioned in numerous other places throughout the Bible, but nowhere else does this notion of connecting homosexuality to Sodom's wickedness appear. 
Another way to look at the story is it is God teaching Abraham about wickedness, punishment, and justice. God seems to be saying, look, Abraham, you need to tell your future descendants that this is what's going to happen if wickedness is pervasive. I saved Lot because he's your family, but otherwise I never found enough good people in the city to offset the harm done by all the bad people. You can argue with me all you want, but this is divine justice. Of course, if God knew all this ahead of time, that this was a teaching opportunity, then God also knew that Abraham would argue against it. We've progressed a long way from the omnipotent God of creation, who creates the world just by speaking. We have now a more intimate God who walks with individual people, and who also takes a little criticism, as when Abraham asked whether God, as the ultimate judge, really ought to be behaving this way. So again we have this contrast with Noah, who, remember, the Bible described as a righteous individual. Noah didn't argue with God about destroying humanity, but Abraham has a different relationship. It's gotten very personal. Their communication has been one-to-one. -one. So it's also possible that this was a demonstration to prove that Abraham, through his sense of justice and his willingness to find the good, was the right person to head up this future great nation. In other words, it was a setup to make Abraham look good. Adam had no real thoughts, remember. Cain had wicked thoughts. Noah was basically thoughtless. But Abraham and Sarah, they really think about things. Which, if we're considering how this story informs our Jewish values, we can say that the act of questioning, the act of arguing on behalf of justice to find the good, the act of welcome and hospitality, these are all net positives. One interpretation of this biblical story might be that this is how we should behave. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are the sideshow to the image of Abraham watching it unfold from atop a cliff, and knowing that he felt that it was wrong. So whatever happened to Lot? Well, he and his family successfully made it out of the city, though his wife was turned into a pillar of salt, and made their way to a nearby town. Upon realizing that all the eligible men have now been wiped out, Lot's virgin daughters concoct a scheme to get him drunk and sleep with him in order to continue the family line. So they do, and he does, and they get pregnant. Lot is not the first biblical figure to commit incest. You'll recall from the last episode that Sarah is Abraham's half-sister, nor will he be the last. In fact, this story might allude to later biblical laws that prohibit incest in order to separate Jews from Canaanites. But still, Lot and his family never seem to come out looking good. Alright, so in the next episode, Abraham will make an attempt to sacrifice his son Isaac on God's instruction. This bizarre and very short event is one of the most famous scenes in the Bible and has influenced Western civilization for thousands of years. So we'll get into it. Thanks for listening, everyone.